I got to have the time machine spit out something that I really wasn't expected, but I'm really glad I have, which is the interview that I did in 2016. Think, think about all those years ago. 2016 with Scott Kipner, who is in the band The Dale Lords and The Dictators, and has every cool story to tell about Kiss and Bruce Springsteen. And then at the end of the thing, listen to the end because he tells the best stories about Lou Whitney. And that is why I keep talking about this guy and why you need to know him too. DaleWileyShow.com Today I'm getting a chance to talk with Scott Kipner, who has been um, involved in the rock and roll, whatever you want to call it, roots rock, whatever rock you want to call it, for uh, punk rock, uh, just every kind of rock there is has been involved in that since the early 70s. And and Scott, I, I'm glad to have a time to get to talk to you a little bit. Um, how's everything going in, in Los Angeles? Pretty good. I'm actually, uh, the wife and I moved a few months ago. We're up in Santa Barbara now. So oh, I'm wow. Okay. I'm about 90 miles north of, uh, yeah. of LA right now. Yeah. Um, yeah it's, going, it's going well. You know, I mean, I'm a New Yorker at heart. I'll always be a New Yorker. <laughs> I mean, I'm born, I follow New York politics way more than I follow California politics. And but, you follow uh, those it, Yankees. It worked out real well living here. <laughs> and you follow those Yankees as well. You're not switching to oh, the West yeah. Oh, yeah. Still watch at least 100 games a year. Believe oh, it or not. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's awesome. Um, well, so, Scott, you know, of course, uh, what, what brought you to Santa Monica what, or Santa Barbara? What made you go north? We're, uh, we are in uh, Montecito. It's kind of a nice little area here in, inside Santa Barbara. Uh-huh. And my wife and I have been working for, um, she worked for a company that was centered uh, here in about 10 miles south of Santa Barbara, a town called Carpinteria. Uh-huh. And uh, it kind of brought her, the company ended up being sold. And she's still, she's the personal assistant to the two uh, co-founders and owners of the company. And they live up here. So they put us uh we're now living in a house up to we're like five minutes. Rather, it used to take Sharon about a half hour or so to get to work. Now it takes her about 20 seconds to walk across the <laughs> courtyard, past our swimming pool, into our <laughs> guest house where her office is. Oh, wow. So I'm That's... living a good life, you know. I'm living a good life. I'm very happy yeah. up here. Our dog, Sally, is extremely <laughs> happy up here. She's made the discovery of squirrels and lizards, <laughs> which uh, – she roams the property every morning looking for, you know, making sure that we're safe from those squirrels and lizards. And, of course, you know, she never catches anything. By the time she <laughs> catches up to a lizard, that lizard's, like, I think, in Argentina at that point. Yeah. And, uh, she doesn't know what to do with them anyway. She doesn't have any kind of real aggression or ferociousness. I think she just wonders what the hell they are, basically. <laughs> well, that sounds like a fun life. That, that sounds great. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It is. Uh, so, uh, Scott, Kena, uh, yeah. I saw something on um, one of your posts recently that I just got a big kick out of. I guess maybe it was kind of a, a rock and roll introduction to you in a way, but um, tell me about being in high school with Ace Freely. I got that was college. Out. Oh, that was college. Okay. That was college. That was actually that. the uh, one term that I went to college. 
And um, after having they had a pretty successful academic career, uh, rock and roll was getting more and more real in my life as far as me part- as a participant. And that one term that I went to college, the only thing I'd ever failed in my life, I failed music. So I figured, well, I know what to do for a living. I'll be a musician. There you go. <laughs> but Ace, Ace, the college was in the Bronx, and Ace was from the Bronx. His name was Paul, but everyone called him Ace even back then. And he would show up, like before classes, everyone would sort of congregate in the cafeteria and just hang out there until the bell rang for their class. And he would show up every morning with two quarts of Colt 45, which I don't know if you've ever tasted that stuff, but it seems like the kind of stuff you would threaten somebody with as opposed to give it to them as a, you know, a drink. <laughs> and um, he was the first guy who ever taught me how to play, like, like some couple of Led Zeppelin songs. He told, told me how to play Black Dog. And um, then this was back in the days when uh, Quaaludes first hit New York, you know, and I was never much of a, a pill kind of guy or anything, but, I, you know, I did have the temptation to try it. So I tried it one day while I was sitting in the cafeteria there in the morning, and an hour later, Ace was carrying me to the bathroom. <laughs> but he was a real nice guy, giggled, called everybody curly, and I lost track of him after that until the dictators were already up and going, and my manager had taken me to Philadelphia to the Philadelphia Spectrum to go see The Who. And Leonard Skinner with the opening act. And wow. I've never been much of a fan of uh, the Southern rock thing, of that style, like Allman, Marshall Tucker, Leonard Skinner, all that stuff. And so I got up from my seat because I was so anxious to see The Who, I couldn't sit still. And I was walking around the corridors of the Philadelphia Spectrum and I ran into Ace. Oh, wow. They telling me, oh, man, yeah, I, I got this band. you got to come see my band. We're playing out at this club in in Queens called the Coventry, which was a place that we had played uh-huh. several times. And it was one of the few places in all of New York where you really didn't have to be a cover band to play. Uh-huh. And I went to see, I, I mean, I don't know how many shows they could have possibly done before that night. But it was very, very early on. They just did not have a record deal. And the whole show, the production values of the show were kind of like the Little Rascals. You know, hey, my mom could make the costumes. Hey, we could sell lemonade over here. I mean, (laughs) everything was entirely homemade. Everything that became sort of state of the art was really at the construction paper and, and Elmer's glue level at that point. Oh, wow. Makeup was crude. The songs were crude. I guess the songs were named crude. But everything <laughs> about it was, it was it, it, never, it didn't seem like there was any potential whatsoever to me really? at all. But about six months later, we started hearing reports of how Kiss, they had had a couple of records out at this point. They, were, they put out those first three records back to back to back. Right. And we were on the same booking agency. Okay. And we started getting these reports that KISS were blowing all the bands they were opening for, that they were blowing all these bands off the stage. And I was just incredulous at the thing that I saw doing that. So right. I had to go see for myself. So at one point they were playing the Beacon Theater up the Broadway. And um, 
being on the same agency, I was able to get tickets. And the whole thing where it had looked like a Little Rascals or high school production was completely in place. Every single tiniest detail had grown to the point where, holy cow, these guys could take over the world. That's really my impression that night. <laughs> and that was it. I really didn't see him. I saw, I saw Ace a couple more times. He was a bad drinker. You know, I think that's kind uh-huh. of a well-known thing about him. And I yeah. remember one night him showing up at CBGB. It was him and some guy in a suit, right? And you didn't see many people in suits at CBGB. But there was Ace, and the guy in the suit turned out to be his accountant. And the first thing he does, he comes over and he says, hi, and he gives me and all my friends each $20 so that we <laughs> can drink. And his, his accountant writes it down, oh, $120 for <laughs> Ace's friends to drink. And um, he was driving a DeLorean. Remember those things? Yeah. Yeah, behind where the cars opened up like, like wings, sort of, like they opened oh, yeah. up from the bottom Ooh, up. Yeah. And that was also a car that it wasn't very long afterwards he managed to total. Oh, wow. And uh, that was the last I ever really saw him, you know? I never really saw him again. I saw him once that he didn't see me, and it was so many years later, I had no idea if he'd recognize me, and rather than just run up to him in the street and try to remind him, I just kind of let it go. Uh-huh. So that was that. That was my, that was my wow. history with Ace Frehley. <laughs> well, I, I... Although I should mention, the dictators, we did do about 10 or 12 shows with them. Oh, really? They had, um, oh, what was the album? It had a cartoon cover. Destroyer, they have an album called Destroyer. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, yeah, that was the album they were touring, and we opened about about a dozen shows for them. Really? Yeah. Wouldn't that have all the cities I had never heard of? I never knew were on the map. Oh, really? Well, so what? Uh, what was the impetus for that? I mean, just having the same booking agent. I mean, those seems like yeah, yeah. they're yeah. really both and, rock and roll, but they're and, coming from different places. Well, the dictators started. Well, no clubs. There was yeah. no club scene in America. Right. There was nobody using the term punk rock. There uh-huh. was no, there was nothing in the world in rock and roll like Handsome Dick Manitoba. <laughs> and there was no band that had the kind of songs that Andy Sherlock was writing. Right. And it, the band had led, I would say, equally equal parts music and the band's own particular brand of humor. Humor, I would say, is, is something that, in, in, and not just in music, but I would say even in movies, like, humor is something that works best on a smaller, intimate level. And right. I think of that movie, um, remember that movie 1941, where it was like oh, a gigantic, yeah. epic comedy? Right. Uh-huh. But everything about it was epic, except it wasn't funny. You know, it was just <laughs> spread too thin, over too big a budget, and too bombastic. Where people yeah. like the Coen Brothers or something like Christopher Guest, they make these little movies that are hilarious. You know, and that's right. the dictators kind of had that that thing. Like, and what worked in a club was not working for the Kiss audience. Say, you know, I mean, sure. and they were very young. The Kiss audience. They were children. They were all, most of the people at Kiss shows were there with their parents. Right. And, um, but that's all, but those types of places, you know, we did lots of shows opening for the Blue Oyster Cult. 
because they were our, our brother band. We had the same management and production team. Uh-huh. And, um, I, but, you know, honestly, I think you could name more bands that we opened for than didn't open for. You'd have uh-huh. a hard time naming 10 bands we didn't open for. <laughs> I mean, that included ACDC. We did shows at ACDC, Thin Lizzy, Cheap Trick, Kiss, um, Bob Seger, Rush, Mahogany Rush, <laughs> um, Snick, Mario Speedwagon. I mean, it, it, it's a complete litany of all the 70s bands. Like Which I said, was... that's really all there was. There were no, there was no CBGBs. There was... The Whiskey A Go Go and probably the Starwood in, in L.A. Uh-huh. New York had Maxes. And pretty much aside from that, there was just not enough club. You couldn't do what what we really should have been doing. Or, right. Well, well so, that was it. You know, it was, it was do that or don't work. Well, so of those bands that you were t- just talking about, the the, you know, kind of arena rock or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I mean, real, real, you know, rock bands. Who were the ones that you could learn the most from? Who did you see someone and say, boy, we need to step this up? Or, uh, I mean, who did you learn about? Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't so much learn uh, stuff like that we could use because uh-huh. what we were talking about could not have been more different in intent, in, in their style, and what they thought a rock band should sing about. I mean, we were so different. But what I did learn was that bands that we would privately make fun of, you know, we just, well, we used to pretty much made fun of everything in those days. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody was really safe from us. But right. one of the things that we learned is that these bands were a lot more similar to us than we ever could have imagined. Okay. I remember we went, we had to fly to Davenport, Iowa to open for Audio Speedwagon. And this was before their 80s superstar hit after hit incarnation. Sure. And I just thought of them as going into the show, I thought of them, you know, a bunch of lame guys with lame sensibilities playing lame music for a lame audience, right? And when I met them, it turned out that their attitude was exactly the same as ours. You know, they really believed in what they were doing. They worked their asses off. They were well rehearsed. They had nothing but respect and love for their audience. And that was reciprocated back to them by the audience. Right. And that was a really big lesson, and it stuck with me. And I never automatically dismissed the band ever again because of stuff like that. Wow. Because I thought that maybe they would just be, you know, we were we were hip, wise guy New Yorkers, you know. I mean, that, that that's the problem right there when you walk out, when you cross the state line, you know, when you're no sure. in New York. But it was a good lesson to learn. It was a really good life lesson to learn that people that seemed like they could not have been more opposite than you, you had a lot more in common with them than you ever could have imagined. Right. Well, and... and... I guess maybe a different attack on the same question. Who were the ones that when you saw them musically, they just really changed your opinion? I mean, who who really blew you off the stage when you were watching? Well, it? ACDC, for sure. You know, <laughs> we, we were on, on some of their very, very first 
American shows. And uh-huh. um, they actually opened for us once. Oh, wow. New York. And after the show, they went down and played CBGBs. I mean, they walked down to CBGBs. We played with them um, this place that had been the Academy of Music and became the Palladium on 14th Street. We headlined there, and they were the opening act. Michael Stanley Band were the middle act, and ACDC were the opening act. When they finished, they walked down to CBGBs and played there that night. Wow. And they were just, at that point in the beginning, they didn't have, in my opinion, a full set worth of great songs. Right. if you saw the first 15 minutes and the last 15 minutes of their show, you would have no trouble becoming convinced this is the best band in the world. <laughs> it was it was so exciting. They had the best live guitar sound I ever heard. Very uh-huh. unprocessed. You know, Angus Young, I don't even know if he had a lead pedal. I think he might have just worked it off the guitar. Uh-huh. It was just that beautiful big tube being overheated, lighter. It, it, it was, they were great. You know, Cheap Trick were a little, um, they were kind of like, they relied on, I don't want to say, I mean, it was sort of a sense of humor, right? Because they had the two funny guys, basically, and the yeah. two heartthrob guys. Right. But having the two heartthrob guys was a big leg up. Like, if we had <laughs> had maybe one heartthrob guy, <laughs> we might have done a little bit better than we did. We, you know, we didn't do well in those situations. First of all, we weren't good. We didn't get, we did everything backwards, the dictators. We got signed to a major label, to Epic Records. At that point, I had never once played my guitar in front of people I didn't know by their first name. Not (laughs) once. Really? And the first time I ever did was in front of 5,000 people opening up for the Blue Oyster Cult and the Stooges at Prince George's Community College in Maryland. Wow. And we had already had it. We were already signed. We did everything completely backwards. What, what did we have? We had great songs that were totally unique in their perspective and sensibilities. We had a great lead guitarist and a real character for our lead singer. But right. Me and Andy, sure enough, we were really beginners, very much so, very much beginners at our instruments. But the one man on earth certainly the one person in the record business who could have come and seen and heard our band and wanted to get us signed was Sandy Perlman and, by extension, his partner, Murray Krugman. The two of them managed and produced the Blue Oyster Cult. And Sandy Perlman had been one of the very first rock writers before they started becoming, becoming called rock critics or rock journalists. In the very beginning, when there was just Crawdaddy Magazine as the one magazine that stood apart from the teen-oriented uh, music magazines, he was a writing for them. It was a, the first magazine that reviewed and spoke about rock and roll in a serious way, that offered rock criticism as an act of imagination on par with the bands that they were talking about. Uh-huh. And so he was already a hero to me. I knew, that, I knew his name. Uh, when I saw his name on the Blue Oyster Cult records, I knew who he was. I had never met him, but I sure knew who he was. And I saw that his friend, Richard Meltzer, who was already a hero to me, as he was another one of the original rock writers and became right. the dictator's godfather. We 
they had they we knew that they were seeing things a little bit more, more askew than the run of the mill or the right down the middle, I should say, hard rock bands of the day. The Blue Oyster Cult had a much more intellectual approach. You know, their lyrics were far different than any other hard rock band or, or any other band, really, at that really, point. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so we had, we, we had that kind of a leg up. But Sandy Perlman now has some juice at, at CBS because the Blue Oyster Cult started to do pretty well right out of the box. And by the third album, they were really starting to do well. Right. And he got us, him and Murray Krugman got us um, studio time to record demos for Epic, which gave Epic Records what they called first night of refusal. Sure. Which is a funny way to put it. It's like, we're the first ones that get to say no. We don't want it. You know, <laughs> that's pretty much what they bought. But lo and behold, they said yes. So I was 19 years old, about to record my first record. I'd never played a gig in my life. I'd never played in front of anyone I didn't know. And here I am in CBS Studios, these like famous hallowed halls. We did our demos at the CBS Church, where a lot of really high-end, famous jazz records were made. I think a few of Miles Davis's big records were done there. Right. We did the album itself at the CBS Studios on 52nd Street. And, or 50th Street. I can't remember what that was now. And we're off and running, you know, so we had to get out there and play. But like I was saying, there was nowhere to do it. There was that one little club, the Coventry in Queens. But outside of that, if you wanted to get outside of New York, you had to find a band that you could open for. Right. The punk scene, as it became known, didn't really start to occur until like 76. And by then we were two years into having into of being a recording because being recording artists, two years into doing these arena shows. I would say that seventy percent of the shows we did were in front of fifteen, ten to fifteen thousand people or more. Wow. And we never did well. That was the thing. What we were doing wasn't translating. And it it, it got to be we had fun with ourselves, you know, because we were very close. Uh, Manitoba and I had already been best buddies since we were 10 years old. And we had our own fun. But I remember those rides between shows, like eight hours in a car, eight hours in a van, feeling that feeling of here we go, you know, we're going to drive eight hours, we're going to feel totally burnt out by the time we get wherever we're going. Uh And then we're going to go out there tonight, we're going to do our best, and no one's going to give a shit. That was the story of our lives. <laughs> and that went on and on until in November of 77, we finally got to go to Europe. And this was the height of the punk thing. When we got over there, the Pistols had the number one album in the country, even though you couldn't write the word bollocks in print. So wherever you saw the name, never mind the bollocks, the word bollocks was just crossed out. So it was never mind the blank. <laughs> here come the we here come the sex pistols or something like that, right. and we got invited by the Stranglers, who at that point had two albums in the top five, and all the all of our sort of um, our counterparts in in the British scene, like the guys from the Clash or the guys from the Jam or Sid Vicious, 
or Billy Idol and Tony James, they were all guys like us. They were huge rock and roll fans. Sure. And they knew everything about us the way I knew all, I already knew all about their bands. Oh, and wow. So we ended up hitting it off with people like that. I was friendly with Billy Idol for a few years after that trip. I was friendly with Hugh Cornwell from the Stranglers, who was the guy who actually invited us to come over. We opened about 15 shows of their tour as well as doing shows on our own. And I met Nick and Joe from The Clash, and uh, I was friends with Bruce, Bruce Foxton, who was the bass player in the jam. And it was it felt great, you know, because all of a sudden, after feeling like outcasts, you know, we would never felt exactly like we belonged at CBGB's, the way television and the Ramones and Blondie all really seem to be, have been born there in a way. <laughs> we, by the time CBGB's opened, we had already been playing for a year. And right. our thing was had bordered on, on, on hard rock itself. You know, we weren't exactly, but we were nothing really like any of the established hard rock bands. Right. But musically, it wasn't that much of a stretch. You know, Ross and Boss, who was our one sort of claim to being a professional band, really could take on any of those players and any of those other bands and hold his own pretty well. Right. And because of that, the CBGB crowd, I don't think they knew in the beginning, especially, they really didn't know what to make of us. You know, we we seemed like, well, we kind of aren't really like, we're not really like sticks or anything. We're not really like Harry or Steve Wagon. But then again, we're not really like television or the Ramones either. Right. So we, we like over the next year or two, we kind of got got adopted by that scene. Hilly, who owned CBGB, was great to the Delawares. I, I mean, to the dictators. But and, and as I was almost said there by accident, but truthfully, as he also was to the Delawares, he was fantastic to us. He treated us great. He really was another person who early on was instrumental in um, in helping the band get along. Sure. So everything was a funny fit for us all along. And to, and to this day, you'll see history books on the subject of the New York punk scene. And some of the, it's about 50-50 whether they include us or not. Right. And, I mean, they can argue back and forth whether we're a real CBGB's band. I mean, the idea of that alone is like, what are you talking about? Yeah, that's a, a silly real, thing. A real CBGB's <laughs> But um some would argue we weren't, and some would argue we were. And one way or another, the one thing that's inarguable is that we were there. And I, right. I would say I probably played that stage close to as many times as anybody else played that stage, except maybe Lenny Kay. Uh-huh. But I bet I'm close to 100 times on that stage over the years that we played there, between the Delors, my solo career, between playing with Helen Wheels and, and playing with the Dictators. Right. So it all got it all got mushed together. But over in England, they didn't have any of that any of that stuff. They just saw Alan names. They saw that there was some kind of association with CBGBs, and that was all they needed to know. Uh-huh. And so they all those those guys and all of those bands came out to see us. The way everyone in the bands in New York came out to see the Clash when they hit New York, or they came out to see the jam when they played. They jam played CBGBs once even themselves. Uh-huh. And um, so that was kind of the story, you know. And in the Dictators in the 70s, we made three albums. 
and it ended up being too little, too late. You know, the third album came out. We had finally become a fairly good rock band live. And ACDC, we became friends with ACDC, and they really wanted us to come to Australia to open up their Australian tour. But Electra Asylum, who was our label, decided they had a better idea. They decided they should drop the band from the label instead, <laughs> which is what happened. So oh. everything by the time we got we got good too late. You know, we didn't we didn't spend two years in in the clubs just just honing our craft and trying to get better. We got taken from our rehearsal space, play, having played no gigs, into the CBS studio to record an album. The CBS. Yeah. And well, do do you think that um, in a way that maybe those large arena shows are more forgiving in a way than the club shows? I mean, is, is, well, is there a different they, way to approach it? It could be, except they also allow the audience, the anonymity, to ignore you in a way <laughs> that a club show would never. And uh-huh. that was mostly the reaction. You know, we didn't get booed. It was just kind of this benign indifference. The real test in those days was, well, in the local record stores the day after you played, did people go out looking for the record? Right. And in our case, the answer was no. Um, Although, okay. it's funny how many people I meet these days who tell me that they did see the band in the, in the arena days, and they did go out and buy the records. Uh-huh. And in a way, the dictators were a little like, I mean, I would never compare ourselves to the Velvet Underground because they're my very favorite American band of all time, and I idolize them, and I love Lou Reed's great guy and, uh, yeah. and um, a hero and, and an inspiration. But the way Brian Eno had once said, you know, the Velvet Underground sold maybe 30,000 records in the beginning, but every one of the, everyone that bought one started a band. Right. And the dictators right. seemed to have a little bit of that to them themselves. You know, when we first met Joey Ramone, first of all, he wasn't Joey Ramone yet. He was, and he was a drummer in a glam band. Uh-huh. And so that we were we were ahead of the curve. That was the other thing that made it difficult for us to feel like family with with the other CBGB fans. Uh huh. Well, so what is we was, just, Joey a, yeah. was Joey a dictator's fan? Is that how you guys? Oh yeah, yeah. He he was a fan, and and in the end, Andy Sharnoff and him when when Joey passed away, Andy was in the room. You know, Andy and he became oh, very very close friends. And, you know, uh-huh. we were friends with every band. You know, we were friendly guys. We were from the Bronx. We didn't have any real attitude. We didn't come to Manhattan with, like, visions of Andy Warhol dancing in our heads, you know. We were we were like a, a bunch of middle-class kids from the Bronx, wise-ass kids who loved rock and roll. And right. that, was, that, that was pretty much it. That was what we did. That was who we were. And we had no problem making friends with other bands. There was no sense of competition with any of the other bands. Um, the Ramones were friends, the Dead Boys were friends, the Cramps were friends. And, uh, you know, and, if you want, and Blondie were friends. I mean, I'm still friends with Clem Burke. I still see Clem. Uh-huh. Every once in a while. Usually it shows I run into him. Uh-huh. And um, that's really how it's remained. You know, we ended up, over the years, we became, I would think that the other bands probably thought of us as, you know, quote-unquote, Bill CBGB's band. Right. Even if the, even if the press and the critics and the, the writers <laughs> did not. 
Well, um, so at some point, um, I, I've heard Eric's stories about how, you know, he first met uh, Lou Reed. Is that also how you became introduced to him? Yes. Okay. Met Lou Reed. It was, uh, we had this, again, we had the same booking agent. <laughs> Excuse me, Bill. Okay. Getting a little cold here. Um, um, we had the same booking agent, and Lou Reed was going out on the road, and he needed an opening act. So the booking agency gave him a stack of like 20 records to listen to. And according to Lou, he hated them all, except for <laughs> one. And that was, that was the Delaware's record. Right. And he recognized the kinship. He recognized that there was something familiar about what the Del Lords do and what he was always about. Right. So he picked us to be the opening act. And, you know, I, just like everybody else, had heard all the stories about how mean and, and ornery and tough to get along with and all that stuff about Lou. And the person I met was just one of the nicest, most gracious, gentlemanly, generous people I've ever met in my life anywhere, music or outside of music. Uh-huh. And certainly not the Lou Reed of, of infamy. And anybody who's ever been an opening act for a, a much bigger band the way we were when we were opening for Lou knows that sound checks are usually not going to happen. There's usually no time for the opening act to have a sound check. But instead, Lou Reed stood on that stage for the first few nights to make to, to, that his road crew knew that every night the Del Wars get a sound check. Oh, wow. No questions asked. That wow. we were there as at his invitation, and he was the host, and he took responsibility for our comfort, for our well-being, for... Just, I invited these people. They're not. I, I'm, I didn't invite them here to get treated by shit, like shit, or be ignored right. by by my own road crew. And it, wow. you know, and one thing about the Delroys, we always got along great with everybody's road crew. You know, we related to the guys on the crew. We related to guys that worked like that and worked really hard. And um, and it was a great, great time. And during the tour. Nanny's father, Manny Coyote, was the original bass player. Right. And Nanny's dad passed away on a Thursday or a Wednesday. And we woke up on a Thursday morning. We were out on the road, and we found out Manny had already flown home. And well, we figured that, you know, well, I guess that's the end of the tour. And Lou, we obviously had the weekend shows coming up. He had to replace us. You know, he needed somebody to open the shows. But not only did he refuse to replace us, but he extended his own set that, those nights like by another 20 minutes, and he sent over $1,000 worth of flowers to Manny's father's funeral. Oh, wow. And that right there is an illustration to me of, of exactly the kind of guy Lou Reed really is. Wow. I never once saw that other Lou Reed. And he was my neighbor. He was my yeah. neighbor. And, and when I was still living in New York in the village, Lou Reed lived around the corner. And every once in a while, I'd run into him, you know, uh-huh. and it was just so wild. I don't know, running into Lou Reed. The first <laughs> time I ran into Lou, I was walking behind him, and I'm looking ahead, and I'm like, that's, that's Lou, right? Oh, yeah. But hey, Lou, 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 and he's not turning around. Lou, Scott, the Del was, and he turns around, and I go, oh, 
Oh, Scott, I'm really sorry, man. I, I just never answer people in the street. I go, uh, what's up with that, Luke? And he said, <laughs> you have no idea how many times somebody's come up to introduce themselves to me in the street, and what they want to tell me is how they OD'd listening to heroin, how they <laughs> shot up for the first time listening to heroin. He goes, oh, wow. it gets really old really fast. And I was like, <laughs> wow, I never, I, I never would have thought about that. But right. I can imagine how, you know, that at first of all, it's missing the point about the song, right? And then second right. of all, Absolutely. it's an ugly, awful thing to feel like you're in any way responsible for, even if it's not directly your cause, even to be in the chain of events that leads to somebody hurting themselves or throwing their lives away on heroin. I mean, that's that's a heavy burden to carry, you know, for your yeah. arm especially. And but every once in a while I run into him, we go grab a cup of coffee, we grab a burger. And ironically, one of the things we talked about almost all the time was he loved doo wop. Louis was oh, a yeah. huge doo wop fanatic. Right. And he especially yeah. loved Dion. Right. So at that point was maybe five or six years away from me meeting him and becoming this one of my the best friends of my entire life. Wow. And I've been right. friends now with Dion for twenty years. And he really is like the big brother I never had. So there was that connection as well. And as a matter of fact, the last time I ever saw Lou, I was staying with a buddy of mine who is actually the guy who owns the record company that put out the last, uh, the most recent Del Lord's record, Elvis Club. Uh-huh. He was on the reissue of the record that I made with the Skeletons. And right. um, also, was be a non-coffee drinker. Right? So at <laughs> 8 o'clock on a winter Sunday morning, I was in New York to be taking, what was I doing? Oh, you know, I was asked to take part in this symposium in Jersey called the Glory Days Symposium. It was an uh-huh. entire week of lectures and events centered around Bruce Springsteen, right? <laughs> who was also a friend, who I also met way back in 1975. Right. Uh-huh. So I, I was happy to be doing that. So I'm walking two blocks in a freezing cold Sunday morning to get coffee. Because, I mean, I can't even open my eyes without coffee. And here I am walking two blocks in the snow. And when I get to Hudson Street, I turn the corner, and there's Lou Reed and uh-huh. Lori Anderson. And they're walking a little dog. And I go, Lou... And he looks, I go, Scott from the Dolores, and he gets so excited to see me. <laughs> like, I, I can't believe it, you know. At first of all, I didn't know if he'd remember me. He was so happy to see me. He starts raving about the band, to worry as and telling you how great the band was, and how we were so, we honored him by agreeing to sing with him on, on the song Rock and Roll. <laughs> we honored him, you know. It just blew my mind. And, I realized this isn't the Lou Reed who's up on bright and early on a Sunday morning because he's been speeding since Thursday. Right. You know, this was the new Lou Reed who was clean and sober and was up early in the morning because he had to walk the dog like everybody else. And (laughs) just stood there and talked with him for a while. I told him, uh, you know, after the last time I saw him, how I had heard from Dion, and we ended up having a band together, and I wrote all these songs with Dion, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he had inducted Dion into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and, 
They were great friends. They was really, they really, the two guys could not have been more opposite. They really uh-huh. loved each other. And, you know, that was a good thing, too. So wow. that was the very last time I, I you know, I saw Lou. Well, so how did you um, how did you end up becoming friends with Springsteen? He was a Dick Peters fan, right? Unbelievable! That's <laughs> unbelievable. I, I the story with Bruce goes. I had sort of written him off without ever hearing him. I remember the ads for the first record, and he was being touted as a new Dylan. You know, when uh, and I think back and I go, yeah, that was. That was what, like 1974. I'm thinking, yeah. Dylan was 30 years old. We would we were right. done with him at that point. That was it. 30 years old. You're <laughs> over. Sorry, sorry, Bobby. You know. <laughs> and so I ignored him. The the ads for the first album all contained the first batch of lyrics from "Blinded by the Light," "Mad Men," "Drummers," "Bummers," "Indians," and "The Summer." So I could easily see what they were talking about with the Dylan thing, but. I just, but I wrote, I just totally wrote him off with that. And then after a dictator's rehearsal, we were all standing about midnight, we were all standing around bullshitting before we went our separate ways. And Andy, sure enough, says to me, you know, I just heard that new Bruce Springsteen record. And I went, oh, yeah, really? Expecting him to tell me, you know, don't worry about it. It's a piece of crap. You're not, you're not going to want to bother with it. But right. Andy said, you know, I think you better hear it. And so I got went to the label, the label. Again, he was on CBS. We were on CBS. I got a copy of it. And I know it's a cliche, and you hear this a lot, but it, it changed my life. Sure. It changed my life. By the end of Side 2, I was in a combination of the shock of the new with the shock of the familiar. Like, where? How can there? How come there was never been a rock star like this? How come there was never somebody who could combine these elements? It was like the guy went broke into my house while I was gone, analyzed all my albums, and came up with that. You yeah, know, that was what it felt like. Uh-huh. And so, a few months later, our brother band, the Blue Oyster Cult, were tapped to open for the Faces in New York on the Faces Farewell Tour. Oh wow! And at that point already, at that point the Blue Oyster Cult were um, already a headlining band in New York. They were a major band, and they didn't like the idea of having to open for anybody. Uh-huh. Right? They would they pissed them off that they were opening. So CBS threw them this big lavish party backstage or up in one of the party places in, inside Madison Square Garden itself. And again, I'm on the label. Bruce is on the label. We were both there. Knew there'd be a lot of free food, you know. And what the hell? I did the faces, so I might figure this would be good. So I'm walking around in there, and there's all these people from the label dressed really well, and there's all this great food, and people are drinking and eating and having a good time. And I'm walking around like Mama Luke of the Year, you know, three years running. Nobody wants to talk to me. Nobody has gives a shit who I am. <laughs> and I'm walking around, and all of a sudden, I see this guy sitting by himself at a table, and I go, oh, wow, that's that guy. That's that Bruce Springsteen guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> Excuse me. And so I went over to him. I said, hey, Bruce, my name is Scott, and I, I, I'm i in a band on the label. I play with this band, The Dictators. He went, The Dictators? <laughs> you are kidding me. 
<laughs> I went, no, no. I go, he knew every second of that first Dictator's record. All of Manitoba's in-between song rants, all of the songs. He had been to see the man with Stevie at the, um, Stevie Van Zandt at the bottom line in New York, and he knew it all. He said, oh, me and Clarence, we act out all those things, really. It, it was, and I was like, I, I tell him, you know, Bruce, I, I just wanted to tell you, I, I heard your records, and I I really think it's like the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. And <laughs> we just became instant friends. And that, that went on for quite a while. I, I saw him again. My girlfriend at the time was working at the box office of the Carnegie Hall Cinema in New York, which was part of Carnegie Hall around the corner. And it was one of the first theaters to show like two classic, two different classic movies every day. And uh-huh. often I would go pick her up at the box office on the way home. Uh, and we go back to the Bronx together. And uh, one night, another cold winter night, we're in the box office. I'm standing in this little box office with her because she's got a heater, one of those portable heaters. And I see online outside this guy in a jacket and a baseball hat. And I'm looking and go, hey, Pam, that's that guy. That's, that's Bruce Springsteen. And <laughs> she goes, well, tell him to come in. I'll get him in for free. So I said, hey, Bruce. And he always calls me top ten, always. Right, he loved calling me top ten. And hey, top ten, how you doing? I said, oh goodness, listen, my girlfriend, this is my girlfriend Tam. She so she can, you know, she can get you into this for free. He was like really grateful, like a guy who for whom the eight bucks it was going to cost him to get in, it was a really big deal, you know, uh-huh. at that point. Yeah, and he, it was the first time I ever asked him for an autograph, right? Uh-huh. And I didn't ask, I didn't tell him what to write, I didn't ask him anything. And on his own, he wrote to top ten dictators forever, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and I just still to this day marvel at how cool that was to say and how much it meant to me at that time. You uh-huh. know, the dictators didn't never really gave me the feeling this is at some point everyone's going to get it and this is really going to work out. I'm going to make a living doing this, and I'm going to be playing rock and roll for the rest of my life like I always wanted to since I saw the Beatles and Ed Sullivan. And he wrote that, and it was the biggest lift I had ever gotten in my life at that point. And that remained. You know, we ended up, um, when the Dictators were recording our final album of the 70s, Plug Brothers, those guys were next door working on um, Darkness on the Edge of Town. So I saw them every single day for like two months. <laughs> and so that was when I first got friendly with the whole with, with all the guys in the band. And that, that remains to this day. I'm still friends with Gary, I'm still friends with Stevie, I'm friends with Bruce. Uh, and I in fact an old friend of mine, Charlie Giordano, got the keyboard gig after Danny passed away. Uh-huh. And Clarence was a great friend. Clarence was amazing. Clarence was sort of like this mystical kind of guy. Except that he was also about six four, two hundred and eighty pounds. Like he was a big man. But they call him the big man. They were not kidding. And he tried out the Baltimore Colts as a linebacker. And a funny anecdote, when we were recording next door to them, you know, Bruce was a total non drug guy. I don't I don't think he's ever smoked pot. As far as I know, he's never smoked pot. I know uh-huh. he's had some beers and stuff like that but I don't think he's ever smoked pot. And Clarence would sneak into our studio 
and you know, looking for, hey, you guys, you guys get a couple of hits for the, for the big man. And <laughs> sure, of course. And he goes, you ain't gonna tell Bruce, right? And I go, players, don't worry, we're not the kind of guys who tell on anybody, you know. <laughs> and um, so that's how all that happened. He ended up doing a little guest spot on the album, on on the Blood Brothers album. Uh-huh. And he added us to the permanent laminated guest list. And wow. we could show up at any Springsteen show in the continental United States and know that we could get into free. And we oh. took advantage of that a lot. <laughs> he would just show up and he would send Terry McGovern, who passed away also, um, who had been, he was an ex-Navy SEAL, like one of the guys that would fish for astronauts out of the water. And he was Springsteen's like personal assistant, security guy, and Terry would come get us, and we'd go hang out with Bruce before the show, and then he'd come get us right after the show, because Bruce had time to hang out with us before he had to entertain, you know, everybody else that was coming back, and right, it was amazing. You know, people had no idea who we were. Why are these kids getting invited up to see Bruce Springsteen? He doesn't see anybody before the show. So, you know, we would be like, we were just different to him. Wow. And yeah, so, um, you know, you you had your run in the Dell Lords and and made some good records there, and and you know still get to do that today. And then uh, the Dell Lords broke up, and you were kind of yeah. without a place to go, so to speak, yeah. as far as musically. So, tell me what happened after that. Well, that was a really tough time, you know, because I realized all of a sudden that. It looks like I'm going to be, if I'm going to continue in music, which I wasn't sure that I really uh, was going to do. You know, this was the second time that I wasn't sure. I guess the dictators sort of broke up, which happened, didn't last long because we were right. too close. It was a lot easier to stay together than break up. Right. And um, I, if I was trying to, if I was objectively obs- uh, like assessing my my qualities as a musician, I thought, well, you know, I'm an okay guitarist, but uh, I'm not great. I'm, I can't write songs, that's for sure. I mean, I've been trying during the entire seven years of The Dictators and unsuccessfully to write anything. And at the same time, I, I just couldn't see how I could fit in, into the into the future, you know, uh, being a musician. And that finally passed, and I met Manny Coyote, and I was starting to write some songs that I thought were pretty good, and he really liked them. And because there was Manny, I had somebody to encourage me, that evolved into the Del Lords. Uh-huh. And so that happened. And then when that broke up, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. I thought I had written as good a song as I was ever going to write, and we were still not big enough to, you know, sustain a, a real decent living. So. Uh-huh. I really had no idea what I was going to do. I finally decided, well, I got I got this offer from Razor and Tie Records, this little company right. that was just starting out in New York, and yeah. they had been they had started by selling these records. They they had this thing called the Seventies Preservation Society. And right. They were licensing all these disco records and selling them like on late night TV as compilations and that's uh-huh. how they made their money and then the next thing they did they started reissuing records by artists that 
I guess they would have thought of I would have been in that category. It was people like um, Johansson sure. and Graham Parker and uh, Elliot Murphy and um, Joe Grusecki. And that's when they, for some reason, EMI did not want to license the Dell Wars records to them. So my lawyer said, you know, you could sign Scott if you want. You could probably get where to do a record with him. And that's how the record with the skeletons came about. Uh-huh. And then once and that, and that, it didn't, it, it did okay, but the label was a, still a beginning fledgling label, and they did not really have enough money to do what needed to be done as far as the music business of the early 90s was concerned. Right. And then when that, so when that ran its course, I really had no idea what I was going to do. The dictators were playing again, and that was cool. I was something to do. We were playing quite a bit, and the band had finally gotten really, really good. Uh-huh. And um, I decided I have all these songs sitting around. I think I'm going to take the rest of the money that I have, and I'm going to make the record that I want to make. Because one of the downfalls of making the record with the skeleton was... Razor and Tide did not have enough money to keep them on the road. Uh-huh. Not only did I make a record that needed a band, but it needed that band. You know, they were the only band on earth that could really understand what I was doing and execute it. <laughs> and I, I was so thrilled to, be, to have Donnie playing guitar on a record of mine that I let him play most of the guitar solos. Uh-huh. And that would have been fine if he would have met, if they would have been able to pay the skeletons to remain the band because I can't execute what Donnie can execute. And if I did nothing to practice guitar for the next 150 years, that would probably remain true, you know. <laughs> but so the next record, um, I called it Saving Grace, and I played all the guitars on the record just uh-huh. on the philosophy that, well, if I did it once, there's a good chance I could do it again than if I had to reproduce it live. Uh-huh, right. And that was that was what happened. And yeah. with that record, it took a while to find the right place for it. I really couldn't bear the idea of working my ass off, putting my heart and soul, my money, my everything into the into this record just to have it flushed down the toilet by another layer. Sure. And it wasn't until 2006 when I met this guy, Abe Bradshaw, who had the label Two Minutes, 59 Second Records. And he was the perfect guy. Just the perfect guy who got what I was doing, who really had some backing and was willing to do whatever it took to make the record successful. And I ended up getting Dion on that record for me. And this was even after I had played with Dion. That was the other thing that happened. That kind of was a, um, it was sort of a double-edged sword. You know, the guy calls me up one day and says, move the sky. Uh-huh. And I ended up writing songs with Dion for like six months. We put together a band with Frank Finero from the Delos as a drummer and right. my buddy Mike Maceros, who was the bass player in the Smithereens. Uh-huh. And we called it Little Kings. And we went around, we played for about three or four months. And, uh, I don't know, Dion, I think, had a different kind of idea of where the music business was at. He thought a lawyer would just be able to get us a record deal, and that proved to be not as easy as uh, as he thought it would be. 
And I ended up being the musical director for him doing what he calls the Dion thing. I was the lead guitarist and I did all the arrangements and I got the band to rehearsal. I got the band. I sound checked the band. He hated doing sound checks. And through that, you know, I mean, he has this new record out there now. He has this duet with Paul Simon called New York is my home, which is a song that I co-wrote with him. Oh, wow. And, um, that was sort of how I filled time. And the downside of, of that was after putting out the solo record, the first solo record, the one for Razor and Tide, the one with the skeletons, uh-huh. I should have continually been doubling down on the idea of Scott Kempner solo artist. Uh-huh. But you know, when Dion calls you and he's your childhood uh-huh. hero and he's from your neighborhood, you, I mean, I, that, I, I, I just forgot everything else. Right. And the four or five years that I was playing with him every day, well, you know, full time, it was it was time that I was losing for trying to um, establish myself as a solo artist. Right. And oh, things that I should have been invited to participate in, they weren't even thinking of me. I wasn't on their radar. Right. So it was it really was a double edged sword. It was exciting. It was it was flattering. But in the end, it was coming out of the longevity of my career, the idea sure. that I was a solo artist, the idea that I was going to do this stuff and I wasn't going to have a band, or if I had a band, it would be a backing band. And uh, five years later, it felt like I was starting all over, all over again. Uh-huh. And that was, that was pretty much it. The record Saving Grace came out in 2006. And I did a bunch of shows with that, and it, and it went well. But again, they the label ran out of money. You know, independent labels, it's a really, oh, it's yeah. a tough thing. Really, right. really tough thing. Yeah. And uh, Abe, despite all his best intentions, um, was not able to keep the thing going. Sure. So, then next thing you know, there was this promoter in Spain who, his favorite two bands in the world were the Del Lords and the Big Bang. <laughs> I, hey, I, was, I was in both of them, you know. And whenever I would go over with the dictators, which was at least pretty much at least once a year, he would always ask about what's going on, and I would tell him, and he would say, you know, if you could just get Eric at least, you know, and even if you couldn't get Frank and Mary, but if you could get Eric, the two singers from the Delors, and you could you could call it the Delors, you know. It's not like the band. It's not like the dictators where when Andy and I left. It was two of the founding members leaving. Sure. Two of the three founding members leaving. Right. But with the Delords, that was his route. So I had this idea. So I called Eric, who I had sort of lost. It had become a, we had become estranged from each other. I hadn't really seen him very much at all over a bunch of years. I did go see him once when he was playing with Steve Earle, and they played out here. And I decided I would call him. And tell him that, oh, Pepe, the promoter in Spain, he's always asking me to come over and play. And, you know, it's like, I don't mind doing the solo thing, but you know, what do you think about the idea of me and you going over there to do it? Uh-huh. And Eric was up for it, you know, much to my surprise, Eric was up for it. <laughs> and as we're talking, he goes, you know, we really should at least tell Frank and Manny. And so I'm like, well, sure, you know, no problem. You know, Manny life had completely changed. He was doing he was a, a lawyer, doing family law, living in Houston. And I hadn't seen Frank in, in a while. 
Well, the Frank played drums for the Dictators for about four years. So oh, okay. I saw him for, for some period of time in the 90s. Uh-huh. And Manny, much to Eric and my surprise, was like instantly, I'm in, I'm in. So I was like, wow, okay. Uh-huh. So we should call Frank, you know. So I called Frank. I said, listen, I just want you to know, here's what happened. Pepe has been asking and asking and asking, as you know, to the Delores. I know you're busy. He was, Frank was playing with Cracker already at that point. And uh-huh. I said, I said, Frank, you know, you know, you're my guy. If ever I had the opportunity to pick the drummer I want to play with, out of all the drummers in the world, it's always going to be you. But uh-huh. I can make a lot more money if I can call it the Delwards, even if you're not there. And I can't really afford to not make as much money as I possibly can doing it. And right. he understood. He goes, like, hey, look, I hope it goes great. No problem. I'm not offended. I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. 24 hours later, I get a phone call from Frank. He goes, no way, no way. No one is sitting in that seat but me. I'm going. I'm there. I'm on. I'm down. <laughs> no one is sitting behind the drums for the Delroads. I'm the only. I'm the Delroads drummer. That's that. And that's really the beginning of how we got back together. Wow. Eric sent me a couple of records that he had been produced that he had produced that, and he told me how he had produced them, like in increments, and um, that he goes, you know, I bet you have a bunch of songs that would probably record well that way. And I said, as a matter of fact, you know, I do. So we made a tentative plan that before we went to Spain, we would try to get some stuff recorded so we would have something new. And that ended up turning into Elvis Club. It morphed from demos into into the full-on Elvis Club album. I had around, I don't know, 15, 18, 20 songs, and we whittled it down, and uh, and that was really the rebirth of the Delwards. And the big difference this time was we weren't making a new record because it was time, because we had toured for a year and now it's time for another record. The label needs a new record. We need to have something new out there, blah, blah, blah. We were doing it without any boss, without anyone or anyone putting up money for us, therefore making us um, obligated to them in any way. And we were all together for the first time in 23 years, and the reason we were together was because we wanted to be. Sure. And that made all the difference in the world. Sure. And having Eric produce it, I mean, he, it, it could not have been better. It was just perfect. You know, the 80s were a weird time for recording. You know, a lot of these weird oh, yeah. reverbs, these dated oh, reverbs yeah. on the drums and the guitars. And I mean, we had Neil Giraldo producing us. I mean, he's one of the best guitar players in the planet. And he was at the mercy of the styles of, of and the technical stuff of 80s rock recording. Right. And Eric was always frustrated by that. And Eric had, was always developing his own production philosophy, I guess would be a good way of putting it, of how he thought records should sound, especially guitar records, especially our guitars. <laughs> and having him produce it, it went by so easily. It was so painless. And it was it was like I didn't have like even with Neil, as much as I trusted Neil and still do it, I just came from having breakfast with Neil right when you when you called actually. Uh-huh. And it was um he 
I, I could just, I didn't have to show up for, you know, I knew that if I just left it in Eric's hands, it would end up perfect. Right. And that was really what happened. That was exactly what happened. Eric was the perfect producer for the band. He had, that, at that point, he had tons and tons of experience, and he had a style all his own, and it, it worked. Everything just could not well, have gone smoother. You guys played last week, right? I mean, are there any plans yeah. for... First time in a year and a half. Wow. So what are all had, plans for what else is going on? All of us, everyone in the band had surgery. <laughs> and not even like old guy surgery, more like sports uh-huh. guy surgery. Uh-huh. I tore my rotator cuff and I tore my labrum, which connects the bicep to your shoulder. Uh-huh. Eric tripped in his apartment and broke his fibula bone, which is yeah. a little bone down by your ankle. Frank had tennis elbow, which it sounds like a rich person's fun disease. They talk about like white collar crime. Right. <laughs> really, really, really painful. Oh, yeah. What it actually is is your tendon coming loose from the bone. Right. And it was brutal. The end of the last what we did in 2014 was pretty hard and that was why because he was just doing everything he could to try and compensate right. and on top of that our bass player Steve Almas he uh, ended up finding out that he had a, um, a clogged artery in his heart oh wow you know so it was like he had to have a stent put in wow. so you know I mean I, I knew other people that happened to when they were like in their 30s um, and <clears throat> Rotator cuff, you know, that's like I'm pitching for the Yanks type like injury. So it was a really long time off, but uh, we finally were all ready to go. Waiting now for our um, booking agent to rebook the uh, Scandinavian dates that we had to miss, and the we also had the uh, what did we have? Yeah, we got asked. I got asked to do this benefit for this charity that had been set up in Clarence's name. And ever since, you know, you you mention those guys to me and somebody needs something and somebody from the East Keep Bands involved, I just just say yes. And then I find out what it was I said yes to and hope that it isn't too terrible because (laughs) I'm going to do it anyway. So it ended up being good. We ended up adding a second show. And the second show was exponentially better than the first. And just super anxious to get back, you know, because that's really, that's our thing. You know, the live thing is where we, although, you know, now I, I feel really, I can't wait to do the new record, right? We started the new record, uh-huh. and we got a few songs, got some tracks and some vocals and some guitars on a few songs, and we got a bunch more to do. And uh, we're just sort of waiting for the studios, Eric Studios relocating. And when they're all, when they're all set up, We'll uh, we'll finish that record. Wow! So, yeah, it's been a, it, it's it was I can't tell you how good it felt to play. You know, it just <laughs> all right. This is what it, the first show felt like more like I was learning to ice skate for the first time than I was right. playing a gig. Uh-huh. It was like I, I I know this I know I've done this before. I'm sure I can I'm sure I can do this again. It was it was really alien and really weird, but we're back. Well, yeah, good. Healthy, ready to go. Well, that's good. You know, um, I I noticed that on your 
website you wrote some about one of my favorite people and um, somebody that a lot of people know, Lou Whitney, uh, when he died. Tell me a little bit about what Lou Whitney meant to you. Oh, well, Lou Whitney, uh, you know, I, I say the greatest man I've ever known. That's that's the first thing I can tell you. Uh-huh. I met Lou, my great friend Rich Neeson, had been managing, not managing, he was road managing and doing sound for Steve Forbert. Uh-huh. And Steve Forbert first signed with Sire. And at some point, they decided they need to find a band, and somebody recommended this band in, in this town called Springfield in Missouri, and he, this guy was raving to him about the band. These guys know 300 songs at the, top, at the drop of the hat. They're amazing, blah, blah, blah. And they went and saw him, and that was how they connected. And when right. that show, when Steve and the Skeletons played New York, that's when I met Lou. Uh-huh. And it was like instant recognition, you know. I mean, he was older than me. He was from a completely different type of upbringing than me. But the kind of guy you know that if you had met him, I could have met him at any point in my life, and I feel like we would have been best friends. Right. He taught me so much about songwriting. He taught me so much about recording. He taught me so much about just life. You know, Lou right. had that way of giving you life lessons that you didn't realize you were getting because you were laughing too hard. Right. <laughs> and later on you think about it and, you know, it, it could be something that would change how you were going to do everything in your life and from then on. Yeah. It was never ending, really, with Lou. I mean, it, the Louisms were way smarter than they had to be considering how funny they were. Right. You know, I mean, it's the sandwich theory, I use that, that enters my vocabulary a few times a week, every week. You know, you know the sandwich theory, loose sandwich theory? Yeah. So, well, but tell everyone else that does it. Well, give us the rundown. If you go into a deli and, you know, you got, you got the money, you're buying, you want to buy yourself a sandwich, you want that sandwich made exactly the way you want it made. You know, you want this kind of bread, you want ketchup, or you want mustard, or you want mayonnaise, whatever it is. You want this kind of cheese, or you don't want any cheese. You want lettuce and tomato, you don't want lettuce. Whatever it is, you, you're paying for it. You expect to get it the way you want it. But right. if you're hungry and somebody gives you a sandwich, that's pretty good, too. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. You know, that was like, yeah. And, and you know, in life, the sandwich theory didn't, I, I, as I lived, Agree. More and more, I would find examples of, well, you know, that sandwich theory works for a lot more than actual just actually just sandwiches. And um, he helped me. I could, I being a songwriter was brand new to me with the Delos. Right. The first time I ever really was, was playing songs that I had written. Right. And I. Was also a guy who was very idealistic about the idea of a band. You know, I, uh-huh. to me, solo artists are more, and I have a lot of solo artists that I love, but to me, they're more about me, me, me. You know, look at me. Bands are more about the communal, tribal experience, the one for all, all for one, right type thing, right. And that's that's where my heart and soul always is. I've always been a band guy. And I really didn't want to be in a, in a situation where 
since I was pretty much the sole writer for the Bell Lords, where I would be making four times as much as anyone else in the band. I really didn't think, first of all, it, it wouldn't feel good to me. And second of all, I couldn't imagine how it would feel good to anybody else. And I treasured the Dell Lords from day one. And I was willing pretty much to do anything and everything that I could do to keep the band together. Uh-huh. And so I asked Lou, how, how should I do the publishing? What, what can I do, you know? And he said, well, well, top ten, I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> and he said, what you should do is you guys, you should keep the 50% that goes to the writer because you're the writer, but you should split the publishing half four ways. Uh-huh. And that's, I thought about it, and that's exactly what I did. You know, uh-huh. that was, that, that is, we haven't really made enough money for that to to pan out into actual dollars and cents and you, that really are meaningful dollars and cents and stuff. Not that they're all not meaningful, but really meaningful. Right. Like, and that is how we still, we still run bands. And that's how I advise other young bands. When people ask me the same questions that I came to Lou and asked him, I tell other bands that it depends what you want. You know, it depends what you want out of, out of your band. It depends what you want out of life. Right. And, I said, well, Lou, I, I, then I came back to him a few days later. What about if somebody covers one of the, one of our songs? What should I do? And he said, well, there's a good chance that the band's performance of that song has a lot to do with why this person wants to cover the song. So you right. can do the same thing. And I was uh, like, thank you, Lou. Thank you so much. And that's exactly what we do. And... To this day, if we ever hit it big, if some song ever goes through the roof and it becomes a car commercial and it becomes a, a covers of it and whatever else, then one day we're all going to go to the Cadillac dealership together and buy each buy our Cadillacs, you know. And that's going to be the greatest day of my life. Like I could, I could do that in return for getting to play with guys so great as Eric Amble. I mean, Eric Amble is just a musical hero to me, really. Right. And, I mean, I love to play guitar, but on the Dolan's record, I, I think the last one, I think I think one guitar solo. Because every time Eric would pick up the guitar with an idea, I would go, it's just so fantastic. Why would I even bother? <laughs> you know, it was like it was like it wasn't a dictator. There was no chance that I was ever going to play a solo as good as Ross the Boss. So why would I, you know, why would I want to stick my ego in there just to get it in there? Right. And that's how, so they get to play with Frank Sinero, they get to play with Eric Amble, they get to play with Steve Almas. I mean, I, I just feel like the luckiest guy in the world, you know? Like, like I can't believe how lucky I got, you know? I'm just so glad I can write songs, because otherwise I'm sure they'd kick me out, you know? <laughs> and if there's no use for them, I'm a like me if I didn't do that. So that's why I take the song so seriously, so I could stay in the band. Oh, well, you know, I mean, it's it's just so, I mean, it's just so interesting to, I was lucky enough to kind of meet Lou and get invited into his circle. And then, you know, mm-hmm. since his death, I've just noticed that there's just a little bit of kind of, you know, a club and everybody's got their little handshake or something because I think everybody in a way feels the loss of him and, 
you know, just wants to remember or, you know, bring his spirit back to us because, you know, I mean, I, I've certainly noticed that I talk to Roscoe more and, you know, do more stuff just to, I think everybody misses that. Well, you were at the uh, Memorial, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I knew that there were a lot of people that loved Lou. I thought there'd probably be 50, 75 people at that thing. And there yeah. were 350 people. Right. And every one of them that I talked to had their own story about how Lou had changed their life for the better. Uh-huh. And the data, the specific data of their story was unique to them. But in the end, everyone had their version of that story. Right. And I, I've never met another person like that. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe Bruce Springsteen's friends feel that way about him. You know, uh-huh. he inspires that kind of like, I got, I got, I got an opinion for you. I got, I got a way to help you, and just Lou in this town. You know that it, it, it grew in, in in its mythology to me. Like Springfield, Missouri, is, is like this mythological place. <laughs> I'm only pretty sure he's on the same planet as the rest of the country. And that's because of him. You know, and, and that's, you know, and really, and then the guys in the band, too. You know, Lloyd and, and, and J.K. and Ronnie, and, and they, they're, all, they're all so close to each other. You know, they really are like this band out of time, this band out of place. And they're the best band in America, except, you know, not enough people know that. But that's yeah. really how it is. And Lou, in fact, the longer I knew him, the more special he he, he became to me, as opposed to less. I never got used to it. I never never took it for granted. I never didn't get surprised yet again at at this brilliant, hilarious thing that he said. That (laughs) turns out to be a tip that I can actually use in my in my actual life. Well, I, I definitely think that's a great way to look at it. He was he was a really special guy. Um, Scott, thank you so much for coming well, on. You're very welcome. Thanks for taking the time to oh, hear my crazy so. story. <laughs> what a great interview with Scott Kempner, DaleWileyShow.com.